The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. This morning's scripture reading is Exodus chapter 22, verses 20 through 27. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to them, to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Park Church. Why don't we pray together, and then we'll get into a rather large text together. Uh, Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, the, the fact that you have, you've considered um, our inability to love you on our own, and you've, you've initiated relationship with us. You've initiated sacrifice to, to move toward us. Uh, you, you've recognized our need, our brokenness, our sin. And you've, you've shown compassion. You've, you've given us uh, Jesus, your son. You, you've given us the, the means to be reconciled to you. You've given us your spirit uh, to testify to our, our new identity. So we, we thank you for that. Thank you for um, just your kindness. And, and we want to hear from you this morning. We want to be shaped by your good word. Uh, we know that the life and joy and satisfaction are not found anywhere outside of you and, and, and what you've spoken. And, and so please, the, the places that, that we're, uh, we're prone to, to wander, we're prone to perform, we're prone to, to hide away in shame, uh, the, the places that we, we feel frustrated toward you, confused, the places where there's bitterness in our lives, would you begin to, to melt those things away? Because your nearness is our good. It's, it's what gives us life and sustains us. Now, so please come even now. Uh, help us to, to understand uh, what, what does the book of Exodus, what does uh, these, the set of laws, what, what does it mean for us here in, in 21st century Denver, Colorado? Give us wisdom. Give us humility. And may we rest in your love. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have, I have always been fascinated with this idea of utopia. And if you guys have ever like, taken a look at a couple of the different utopian experiments in American history, uh, a lot of times they're, they're more kind of like politically bent, uh, but basically it comes down to that there's some sort of idea of what the good life is. This is how human society should operate. And so let's, let's try it in kind of like small test form. Technical definition of utopia is a group of people who are attempting to establish a new social pattern 
based upon a vision of the ideal society and who seek to embody that vision in experimental form. And my hunch is there's a little, little utopian sentiment in all of us. I think that the greater danger in our society today is probably more like an individualized utopia, right? It's like, as long as my life is okay, then, then I'm, I'm okay. Not everything has to be all right. But I think even in the midst of that, there's a, there's a sense in all of us that things can and should be better than what they are. Not just for me, not just for you, not just a series of individuals, but for us as a society, as a culture, as a people. And so we have these longings. I think that's any type of club or association or um, even at uh, different ideologies, economic systems, uh, political mantras, whatever we have, it's, it's something tethered to, we think society, we think culture can be better than what it is. And here's something of the direction we should go and we should start to to test that out, to, to see if this can actually happen. Well, the fact is we're, we're designed for utopia of sorts, and, and we even had it. So when God created the cosmos, when he created the earth and then put humanity within it and created the, the, the beauty and the bounty and the, the opportunity for flourishing and, and fruitfulness in this world, and, and so again, now go image me, we had perfect relationship with God, with one another, with creation, an understanding of what it looks like to, to be a human. It was utopia. I mean, it was the way life is supposed to be, not just individually, but together in this little society. But of course, a rebellious human desire in, in wanting to step away from God's good word, wanting to step out, out from underneath what he has communicated, this is where life is found. We begin to run from that. And then you see God begin to graciously insert himself into our broken systems, into our broken cultures, into the things that we've tried to build up as saying, this is where life is found. This is what it looks like to be a group of humans navigating our way through this life and this world. And he inserts himself, he, he engages us in that brokenness and begins to speak truth and beauty and life and goodness and joy and say, this is actually what it looks like. I'm going to, to save you, to redeem you, to love you, and then begin to, to pull you into patterns of restoration in your life. And that really becomes the pattern for the entire Bible. I mean, following Genesis 3, when, when brokenness and dystopia uh, comes on, in, into play for humanity, God steps in and he begins initiating this plan of love, of redemption, of saving a people for himself. And saying, me having saved you, not because of anything within yourself, because I have been a God of goodness and kindness and love. In saving you, I'm now going to begin moving you into relationships of restoration, of goodness, of really what it looks like to be a human who images me in relationship with one another. Well, this, this really is the backdrop for what's going on in, in our text. And in our, just, just read up of the text that we're covering this morning. It's actually two and a half chapters, uh, 21, 1 through 23, 9. So don't worry, we're not going to go like verse by verse, line by line. Um, we're going to see what does God have to say to us today. But first we have to understand what, what was God communicating then? So recognize the Israelite imagination right now. Like their background, their history, what's going on. They had just been rescued. They've been saved and redeemed from oppressive slavery. They didn't know really what life was. But for generations, this is what they had experienced. 
And then God comes in and he delivers them. Not because of anything in themselves, but because God is gracious. And having saved them, he then begins to say, now this means something for your life. I've called you into my love, into my presence. And now that means something. This has implications for your life. And so last week we heard about you know, the ten words, the ten commandments, where, where God begins to set up and he inscribe with his own finger. This is my desire for your life together. And now the section that we're in this morning is beginning to, to unpack, kind of like in, in case law form. Okay, Israel, this is what these ten words, these ten commandments mean for your life together in this culture, in this context, where you guys are. How do you begin to implement these things? How do you begin to live them out? Where do you find wisdom in the midst of this? So God is beginning to answer the question, not just what are, what are you saved from, but what are you saved for? Like, what does your salvation actually mean in your life, in your society? How do these things begin to be rolled out? Now, we have to, we have to level with one another here. Because we're getting into, you know, last week, this week, and, and coming weeks, we're talking about law, right? Mosaic covenant, what God gave to Moses as the Israelite nation. And this can get really confusing for us. Like, what does that mean for me? Like, I'm under the new covenant. Like, Paul had a lot, of, a lot of things to say about the law, and it really wasn't all that positive. So, so how can this be instructive for me? And so we need to be clear on a few things. One, we as Christians, those who are under the gospel, been saved by grace, through faith, been made alive by Jesus and his work, we are not under the law. We're not under the law. So what you heard last week, what we're hearing now, like we're not under this, we don't, we're not called to, to submit to that. We are not Israelites who've just been rescued out of Egypt. We are uh, new creations in Christ, filled by his spirit, and we are not under the law, not saved by the law. There's nothing we can do to, to earn enough, uh, to be good enough. Um, but also we need to recognize that God knows that too. Like God knew that even when he was giving this law, even back in Exodus, this was part of a much grander story, a much larger story that God was telling throughout history to ultimately get to Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Deliverer. He knows the nature of the human heart. That's one of the purposes of giving the law is to expose our need for grace, our need for a Savior outside of ourselves. He knew that. This is one stop along the way in this, this larger narrative. I think if we're honest, we, we all recognize uh, the need that we have. Like, like we hear law. We hear God's in, intent for our lives. And we recognize where we, where we fail. It's as it, hard as we try. Like even if we feel like, man, I'm, I'm fairly moral and kind of do enough things and kind of submit myself and, and, and be a good kind of person. Well, there are areas eventually in our lives where we start to see the, the cracks in that. We're just not able to fulfill it. I mean, I see this with our, our 20-month-old son all the time. Uh, sometimes I really think that he wants to do what I'm asking him to do. Like, I really think he, he's trying. Like, you kind of see it in his face a little bit. Like, but, like, do not turn the washing machine on. And it's like, button again. It's like, Everett, like, daddy's asking you, like, please do not turn on the washer. It's like, button, turn the knob, button. Like, buddy, like, really, this is not, like, listen to dad, this is for your good. And he's like kind of grimacing a little bit, but he's like his hand is moving on its own almost. Like he can't control himself. Like he's going to hit the button. We see this again and again. Like it just our moral will is bent. And God knows this. 
God knows that we are unable to fulfill the law. And that's really good news that he knows this. Because that's, that's not all that he has put in, put in the Bible. That's not all that he has, he has described for us and, and done in redemptive history. He recognizes our need, and he has come to us in the person and work of Jesus. So we are not under the law. We are under the grace of the gospel. Freedom. You know, we can, we can, we can rest in the Father's love. We are not saved by our own work. But at the same time, God still spoke these things. And this is where it gets a little bit fuzzy, right? A little bit, a little bit difficult to, to navigate. God, God still spoke these words. Like he still gave all of the Bible. And so when God speaks, we should probably pay attention. And when God speaks, we're still getting something of his heart, something of his wisdom, even if we're under a different covenant, even though we're, we're under, under the gospel and not the law. And so what I want us to do for the remainder of our time is, is not to, a lot of times when, when we preach, we, we kind of end with, hey, here's what God calls us to, and yet we all fail. But it's okay because Jesus did not fail, and so we can look to him, find hope in him, find life in him, trust in him, rest in his love, and then we can seek to live out some of these things a little more fully. It's a, it's, we'll continue to preach that way. It's a beautiful way to preach. Um, all of us across the U.S. who preach that way stole it from Tim Keller in his preaching lectures that he, he gave a number of years ago through Westminster. Um, it's a beautiful model. Because of the nature of this text, I'm actually starting with this place of we are saved by grace through faith, not of our own works, nothing we could do to earn it, full stop. Like we need to rest in that reality. Not, nothing we can earn. We, we, we don't need to prove anything. We need to fear that we're not good enough. And none of us are. And we can be honest about that. It's a place we should be honest about that. We fully stop and rest there in the Father's love for us that has come in the person and work of Jesus. And from that place, we can begin to be students of the word in a different kind of way. Because we can go back to Exodus 21 through 23 and begin to say, God, I, not, not as one who needs to submit to this, not as one who's under this can be saved by it, but how do I see your wisdom here? Like, how, how do I see your heart for, for human relationships? How do I see your heart for human society and culture and the implications of my salvation? What, what, is it, what does it mean to, to trust you and to walk with you and obey you? Can I learn something from what you've communicated here for what it means for me today? I think the answer is a, is a very clear yes. And so I want to look at a few different categories, four different categories of where we see this. But first, a little bit of context. Because we start reading, if you guys have the notebooks and we're reading the text during the week, um, maybe you're like, this sounds really offensive and repulsive. And, and how could God like, be allowing some of these things and seeming to like, uphold unjust structures in society around slavery and treatment of women and things like that? Um, so I want to give us a little bit of context, and then we're going to look at four different areas uh, that we see God's heart, that the movement of redemption. And it's all going to fall under this tag. God redeems us so that we may be a force of restoration in the lives and structures around us. God redeems us. He saves us. He rescues us. So that, at least in part, we may be a force of restoration in the lives and the structures around us. All right, so a little context. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Um, 
in typical Jesus-like form. He, he wasn't like tricked by it and kind of cornered into something. He just blew everyone's minds. And he's like, oh, greatest command, easy, love God with everything, like all of your being, every aspect of who you are and what you have, may that be devoted to God in love. And, and he tacked on really quickly a second, there's a second one, love your neighbor as yourself. Love those around you, those that you have some ability to, to care for and show love toward. Um, take that seriously. And, and really, he says, every other law that comes, every other dimension of God's heart for his people hangs upon these two headings, love God and love people. And last week, we heard the 10 words, the 10 commandments, which is kind of like the next tier down of unpacking what it looks like to love God, love others. It's really five and five or six and four, depending on how you... you cut it up. Uh, but it's basically saying, how do you love God? How do you have full devotion and worship toward God? And then what does it mean for your horizontal relationships? And what does it mean to live as one who images God? And now we're in the text that begins to get into the nitty-gritty of real life. Uh, the different decisions we have to make. The Israelites have these different social structures and, and relationships. And how do you navigate these with, with holiness, with compassion, with justice, um, with, with what God has called us to? We also need to remember that God invades our broken systems. He doesn't, he doesn't go to Israel and he doesn't come to us and say, hey, your society is broken, like things are not correct, and so jettison the entire thing and then just start here. He actually begins to move into that broken system to, to redeem a people and then move out in restoration over time. And so, so slowly you begin to see that restoration take place and things to be reordered in the correct way. So the things that we read about, we're like, well, that feels inhumane and barbaric. And maybe it is. Like, there are unjust structures that existed back then, and they exist today in, in different forms. And so we don't want to shy away from that. But also we have to recognize that the Bible at times describes things. It doesn't necessarily endorse them. And so we have to see that, that difference. When, when we're coming to Scripture, what is it actually supporting as this is what you should pursue as the ideal and what is it just describing as this is what is? So that's our, that's our context as we go into it. So the movement of God's redemption is that his redeemed, when we move out into the, the lives and structures around us in patterns of, of restoration, to move toward restoration. So let's see how he does this. Four different, different areas. So if you've closed your Bible, if you're going to open it back up uh, to Exodus 21. Probably the most offensive thing you've read all morning. Chapter 21 of Exodus, starting verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with, go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as male slaves do. If she does not please her master, he who, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. 
He shall, not have, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as, as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not depend, diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. We could go on, but I think that gives us enough to be stirred up over. Um, so parts of the Bible make us squirm a little bit, right? Like we read that and we're like, really? Like slaves and selling daughters and like you can keep the family and the other goes out free. We need to understand what, what uh, economic context is even going on in Israelite society. So this word slave here, uh, do not think the type of slavery that has plagued American history. Um, in fact, that, that kind of slavery is wholesale rejected and people are killed as soon as they do that. Verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So any type of just, yeah, I'm going to take this person and, and, and own them and own complete rights to them. Uh, that, that's a kind of slavery that is, is utterly rejected by Scripture. And so uh, those in uh, centuries past that have, have tried to use the Bible to support slavery, uh, it actually does not. Um, now, What's going on with this word slave? Well, that, that can be translated slave or also worker, employee, um, any, any hired hand. So many different ways to, um, to translate that word because most of their economy was folks doing labor in these household little economies, these little household structures where uh, it was very agrarian, it was pastoral, you had animals, you grew crops. Uh, that, was, that was much of what you did. And if a, if a person had debt, if, if there was a, a fine they couldn't pay, um, if they were just in poverty, they didn't really have any recourse. There was no kind of broader social safety net that they could they can kind of get monthly payments for. They had one thing, that was their labor. And so their labor would be sold to this master of the household, and they would come to live and be provided for in this household, and they would, they would work. Now, you, you, span, you kind of pan out from um, culture within Israel in ancient Near East, and you have massively abusive systems. Well, you can imagine that. If someone, someone, I don't have anything except my labor. I have to sell my labor to this person so I can survive. And if I have a family, that's how they can survive. Uh, a lot of abuse would take place. Well, here, God says, not okay. I'm moving into a less than ideal structure. Like, that's not an ideal structure. God is never saying, like, this is the way that it should go on forever. But he is saying, I'm coming into this broken system and saying, you, you treat one another with love and compassion, with kindness, with humility. And so, even to the extent that when you have a slave, this, this should be a picture of your own redemption. They're going to be only for six years. There's a cap on it. And then send them on their way so that they can actually provide for themselves moving forward. So this is the, the broader economic structure of what's going on. In the section about 
a father selling a daughter. Um, this would be oftentimes when a, a, a father was, was also in poverty. And saying, okay, to kind of paying the bride price, not an option for me. Um, and, and maybe money is tight right now. And so uh, she's actually going to go to this family, to this larger household that was full of lots of different, you know, different generations of the family and different workers and employees. She, she would go in, and live and kind of grow up in that context. And then she would potentially be married to the master of the house or potentially be married to the son of the house. Also, common practice. You would imagine the abuse that would take place there, uh, the brokenness, the taking advantage of. God is saying, do not do that. I'm moving into this broken system, moving into this broken structure, and saying, you, you, you treat one another with kindness and love and humility and protection. Uh, even to the, the extent that she'll, she'll go free, if things are not going to continue on as the way you agreed with, that, with the original father, then she will go free. At least she can be redeemed back by that family. So we have to begin to understand what is going on in their world. What are the dimensions of brokenness that God is beginning to speak into uh, to find uh, avenues of restoration? So what, what is God's heart that we begin to see? God redeems us to move out in restoration to the lives and structures around us. Here's the first one. In upholding human, human dignity and value. We uphold the dignity of the human persons around us, the value of other image bearers of God, no, no matter the broken structures and systems that we find ourselves in. There, there are later iterations of society that are going to look back and say, wow, that was entirely unjust and wrong. How, how could they, they allow this kind of thing to be perpetuated? In the midst of that, how do we uphold the value of other human persons? So questions for us to consider. Who are the people or the demographics our society tends to diminish in their value and in their voice? Who are the people that you functionally diminish in their value or voice? Without even realizing it. Context you grew up in, you just begin to, to kind of push them and their voices to the margins. Maybe it's people at work, in the home. Are you tempted to interact with people simply as a means to your status? Maybe to close a deal, to advance in your career, to somehow gain success. How do you interact with others? Are, are they, they mere property in your broader agenda for what your life should become, what you think it could be and might be? Or do they image God and are those that you're meant to show compassion toward, love toward, service toward? See, interactions with others ought to show the beauty of the gospel, the character of our God. And so as he redeems us, as he saves us, he, he then says, I've saved you from death and destruction and life you know, punished by me forever, but I've also saved you into a certain kind of life. I've saved you for something, and that, that means you move out in your relationships valuing others, showing the dignity that is rightly theirs. So that's the first one. We've out in restoration and upholding human value and dignity. Second one, look with me and stay in chapter 21, go to, to verse 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable, 
But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept, has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. Uh, jump down with me, verse 33. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. And then 22 verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck, actually let's stop there and then jump down to verse 5. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that it, the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. All right, so that's just a few different examples. You can read through and see all the different dynamics of this. Uh, the broader picture here is God is saying that we actually take ownership in making restoration when we cost others. Those of us who are redeemed, we're saved by our gracious God. He calls us to move out in restoration by making restitution when we cost others something. This can happen in, in so many different ways. Here we're seeing you know, the people's property. Like, are you taking ownership for uh, these animals that are virtually killing people? It's like, well, you need to make restitution for this. Or maybe it's, it's like, well, I dug a pit. All I did was dig a pit. Like, what, can't you see there's a pit there? And someone falls into it. It's like, well, part of that's on you. Like, you dug a pit, and someone fell in. You didn't make restitution. But then it's kind of getting to, like, what, well, how much, like, intent was there, and how much awareness was there, and how much culpability is there. It, it gets fairly nuanced in the text. But are we taking ownership of our lives? And then when, when we cost others something, are we seeking to make restitution? That's what God's redeemed people do. That's what we're called to, to be like in the world. A lot of times this is not tangible stuff. Sometimes it is. Maybe we've cost people money or material resources or actively stolen something. We need to make restitution. But a lot of times this can happen relationally or emotionally. That can happen in a variety of different contexts. And so questions for us to consider. Where have your direct actions or negligence or ignorance or unintentional actions caused harm and cost someone else something? Have you owned it? Have you sought to make restitution? I think it's worth us as God's people to consider, where's my passivity or my active um, activity in the world actually impacted people and they've, they've lost something? And have I been one who's moved out to seek restitution in response to it? That's the second one. Make restitution when we cost others. Third one. Chapter, hop over to chapter 23 now. Verse 1. Twenty-three, verse one. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Jump down to verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked, and you shall not take a bribe. 
for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. So here we have third third way that we move out in restoration, in strengthening belief in the truth. We actually strengthen belief in the truth. This is, this is different than just like refraining from technical lies. There's a lot of time how we, we conceive of truth-telling. It's like, well, I didn't, I didn't technically say anything wrong. Like, I didn't actually lie. But are, are we actually moving out intentionally to support belief in the truth? And that's what we have here. This is mainly in the context of their, their court system, basically. It's going to the, the city gate. The elders would come together. They would judge cases. And, and there'd be influence. There'd be people talking and kind of spreading different reports and saying different things and called to the, to the witness stand, stand, so to speak. And he said, don't even side with people who are leaning toward an absence of truth. And in fact, we even go further in saying, are, are we allowing people to believe false things so that it benefits ourselves? Are we okay with people's like, well, I, I didn't actually say anything, but I could have said something that maybe would have changed things. I, I think this, this probably finds its, its way into the workplace more often than we would like to, to admit. You know, where do we allow people to believe false things such that we benefit or, or maintain some level of, of comfort? You know, we're often very bent towards self-advancement. Do we slant things in our favor? Maybe it's not in the workplace. Maybe it's in marriage or with friends. We can kind of shade things just enough that, again, we feel like we can get out on a technicality, but are, are we, we actively moving toward a strengthening of belief in the truth, that, that others would, would love truth, would, would behold truth, would know truth? Or are we kind of keeping these things in the shadows? So where can you push toward truth rather than benefiting from falsehood or a belief in what is false? So those are the first three. We uphold human value and dignity. We make restitution when we cost others. And we strengthen belief in the truth. The last one. This is the text that, that we heard already read. Uh, verse, chapter 22, let's start in verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who is with, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So here you have the, the most vulnerable in a society being described. The sojourner, which is the, the outsider, uh, the person who's, who's not uh, born into the, the Hebrew society, um, they're an immigrant of sorts. Um, you have uh, those who are, are without a father um, or without husband. And why this is so key in their culture is because um, that, that, was their, that was their covenant head. It was the one who would represent them to the broader society. Um, it was the one who would be their, their means of economic production and, and actually having money and provision for them. That was the one, you know, only, only men uh, at this time, changes later in, in the Old Testament, but only men could own property. And so if, if the man was gone in that family, then there was no protection 
Um, there was no voice. Uh, there was no opportunity for that family. And so these are, and again, we're in a different society, but, but who are the most vulnerable among us? Because God's redeemed move out in restoration in covering the vulnerabilities of others. I mean, you see the tenderness of God here. I mean, such that he's like, I, I'm going to, like, this, this is going to invoke the covenant curses. Like, if you take advantage of the, the weakest and the most vulnerable around you, like, for your advantage, like, they need something just to survive, and you're like, oh, I'm going I'm to add some interest on that because you have no other option. You have nowhere else to go. This is not talking about business loans, for the record. It's not talking about, like, new ventures that are being started. This is talking about they have basically nothing. I need to survive. Can I borrow from you? And they're coming alongside and saying, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tack on some interest so I can benefit a little bit as I go back to my, my household and comfort. These are the people without voice, without ability, without oftentimes respect in this society, without opportunity. And God is saying you move toward them not to expose their weaknesses, not, not to take advantage of them, not to manipulate, not to, to benefit yourself, but rather to serve them, to care for them. If you need to take a, a pledge of their cloak, you know, something they would need, kind of their, their basic only possession, then you give it back to them so they can sleep at night and be warm. That you see the tenderness, you see the kindness of God. And so we must be those who are covering the vulnerabilities of others. Instead of taking advantage of those vulnerabilities, how can you leverage your life to be a covering of weakness? And where do you see the weaknesses of those around you? And it might be, you know, very similar acute classes in our society that we'll be able to move out in helping them and serving them. It may also be the weaknesses you see in a friend or a coworker or a boss or your husband or wife or your children. God's people move toward those weaknesses, move toward those vulnerabilities, not to expose them and highlight them and take advantage of them, but rather to say, how can I leverage my life to, to help and to serve and to cover, to benefit you, to care for you? to see that you're better off as a result of my presence in your life? How do we move toward their flourishing? Right, I know this is a lot, a lot of questions, a lot of things to wrestle with, a lot of things to, to think through. Um, maybe a few of these questions would be good for gospel community this week, a group of friends or sitting around the dinner table. Um, because this is the movement of redemption. God saves us, brings us into relationship with himself, not because we've earned it, because he's gracious and kind. And yet as he does that, he begins moving us out into rhythms of restoration in our lives, the ways in which we engage one another. Our salvation is not just something for us to kind of sit self-assured and, and comfortable and like I'm, I'm loved and I'm okay. We need that. But the implications of our salvation begin to move us out. And so that's my, that's my encouragement, that's my, my challenge for us as we step into this week even. How are we doing? How, how are we doing not just at kind of like loving abstract humanity with our theoretical ideals? I think it's really easy to, to love through Twitter feed. You know, it's like, I, I care about these issues and I care about these people and I will talk about it and I have these convictions. And then you have actual like flesh and blood humans in front of you how are we loving them? How are we serving them? And how are we moving out with our lives to, to care for them? 
Um, so that, that's my encouragement for us, because this is the movement of redemption. This is how God has cared for us. This is what he's done for us in the person and work of Jesus, seeing our weaknesses, seeing our vulnerabilities. He had no cost to make up, but he saw the cost that we had, and he paid for it. Now, he was the one that initiated this relationship with us, called us to himself, and now says, go and do likewise. Like, go, go and begin doing the same thing so that this world, this city, and the people in your lives, may, they may begin to experience who this God is. And so allow yourself to, to wrestle with that. What is, not just what are you saved from, but what is your salvation for? And may we be that kind of people, may we be that kind of church, uh, that people may taste and see that, that God is good. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have moved toward us in our, our vulnerability, in our weakness, in our sin, and you've loved us, and ask that you would, uh, you, you would capture our affections in new ways, begin to see you and, and, and experience your love in such a way that it propels us to lay down our lives for the good of others. Uh, so please help us, and we need it. We need you. We need your spirit. Uh, so please work amongst your church uh, for the glory of your name, for the good of this city. For this in Jesus' name, amen.